0: Hi everyone, this is Dr. Michael Wald and thank you so much for joining me today on Ask the Blood Detective. And uh, what I decided to do today was to respond to all the fascinating uh, and and quite intelligent questions that I've received from uh, my listeners. That means all of you out there, or at least some of you. And I received lots of emails in addition to actual real physical letters. <laughs> I didn't know that anyone used snail mail anymore. And snail mail, uh, for those of you who do not know, that's just regular mail. So when I get these letters uh, and bunches that that, that come to uh, my office, I'm, I, I get very excited. So I picked out uh, the ones that were the sort of questions that I hear quite a bit. And I would say that over the, uh, the last 29 uh, years of my clinical nutrition practice really represent some of the more more key questions and, and answers. I do intend to provide the very best responses that I can to the types of questions that make really they make all the difference in your healing efforts. Questions like, do I need to take vitamin supplements? The answer is, yes, you do. With very few exceptions, one of the most Problemsome is probably that for the individual with multiple medications, there may be adverse drug nutrition interactions and you would at least need to see a qualified uh, clinical nutritionist or someone who knows drug nutrient interactions to determine if you can safely take nutritional supplements with your medications. Certain nutrients, will increase the blood levels of certain medications, and other nutrients will decrease the blood level of certain medications. Also, nutrients affect the metabolism of various medications, either speeding up their metabolism, what's called uh, a sped up or increased first pass. First pass is a term used in medicine uh, that denotes the liver's effects upon a medication. The first time the nutrient goes through the liver, it's first pass. So if someone has a very quick first pass, that might be an individual who might need a a higher medication dose because their liver metabolizes the medication so quickly on that first pass. So my point here is that Number one, we do need to take supplements, but those on medications need to take special precautions. There are lots of precautions of taking supplements. Supplements, nutritional supplements are not entirely only good for you. They do, they can have um, adverse effects as well. For example, taking too much vitamin B6 can cause neuropathy, which is a nerve condition, a nerve, painful nerve condition that's not even reversible once you stop taking the B6. Too much niacinamide can cause a very strong vasodilatory effect in the body, meaning it can cause blood vessels to dilate and that could drop the blood pressure, it can cause fainting. It also can cause a very um, annoying and shocking, for those of you who've never experienced it, niacin flush reaction. Uh, patients that I have that have experienced menopausal hot flashes and also niacin flushes say that they're about equivalent. They feel hot, they become red, and they can become a bit dizzy, and their blood pressure can drop. But the reason why we should think about taking nutritional supplements is because our foods today are adulterated. Even our foods that are, uh, let's say fruits and vegetables grown on organic farms, still pale in comparison in terms of their nutritional values to what are known as wild type varieties of certain fruits and vegetables. So the point is you eat your fruits and vegetables and you juice of course, but you should take concentrated, I prefer dehydrated forms of fruits and vegetables in a smoothie. So I've produced four powders, four dehydrated fruit and vegetable products known as Detox One, two, three, and four. These are metal-free products and I designed them myself over the course of the last several years to give um, the most friendly and well-rounded nutritional experience for my patients. So even if you have a lousy diet and you were to take dehydrated powders composed of fruits and vegetables, you've increased the nutrient content and and your health potential Uh, exponentially just by doing that one thing. Of course, I'm not suggesting that a person completely ignores the quality of their diet, the nutrition of their diet. But even if you somehow were aware of what it took to have the perfect diet for you, and I've never seen that yet in any individual figure that out. But even if you did, in my opinion, you still would require nutritional supplements like phytonutrients, various fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, and other nutraceuticals, simply because we can't count on the doses that we're eating. And I've said this before in other Ask the Blood Detective shows, you are not what you eat, you are what you absorb from what you eat and what you activate from what you eat. So when I do testing on my patients, I don't merely check vitamin levels, My past show called Vitamin Lies, I described how vitamin levels, particularly water-soluble vitamins, just let us know of the previous two to three, maybe four days of nutrient intake. And that's pretty much useless when you're trying to figure out what nutrition someone needs. But there are tests that are called functional tests of vitamins. So one example would be homocysteine. Homocysteine is a toxic amino acid that increases in the blood when an individual does not have enough or does not metabolize normally due to genetic concerns, folic acid, B12, B6, vitamin C, E, and B1. So insufficiencies or deficiencies of those nutrients can elevate homocysteine. And elevations of homocysteine are related to dozens upon dozens of different diseases. Even those of you out there that are thinking, well, I have a normal homocysteine. If your homocysteine isn't around a seven, if it's higher than that, but within the normal range, it needs to be lower. That actually um, brings me to the second question. And that question is, what about the blood test that my doctors compare me to? I spoke with a 72-year-old gentleman earlier today, one of my patients. And he said, Dr. Wald, um, this was a phone consultation. He said, Dr. Wald, I'm going to read you the results of my echocardiogram. And as he read it to me, and he said, one of the things he said was that that his left ventricular ejection fraction was 71%. And I said, what did your doctor tell you about that value? And he said, the doctor said everything was just fine. Now, I'm 53 If I had a 71% left ventricular ejection fraction, which refers to the ability of the left ventricle of my heart or your heart to eject with with normal power oxygenated blood, I would be very concerned. But if I were 71 years old, that's considered normal. This patient mistook that for meaning it was optimal. It was not optimal. So we'll have a plan to increase his left ventricular ejection fraction through a different type of exercise and also adjusting his doses of various nutrients like certain specific antioxidants and CoQ10, just to name a, a few for, for to give you an example. Someone else with a 71% left ventricular ejection fraction with a different health history than this gentleman, I might recommend completely different supplements. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about how an echocardiogram, which was the test used to measure the ejection fraction, compared this 71-year-old man to other 71-year-old men. And he fell within the range. But this is a guy who works very hard at his health, And I suggested to him that although he was in the normal range, that he certainly wasn't in the optimal range, and that considering all of his health efforts, something's off. He should have a far better left ventricular ejection fraction. And he agreed. So now, think of your blood test, your cholesterol, your calcium levels, your liver enzymes, your kidney enzymes, your white blood cells, your red blood cells, all the stuff that you're used to getting on a standard blood test. Those ranges are ranges called clinical ranges and you're compared to either men or women, depending on your sex, and your age. So once again, these are age-adjusted and sex-adjusted ranges. As you get older and your values of your labs get worse and worse as, ha- as, that, you know, as that happens with your age, it doesn't have to, but it often does, These are the new clinical ranges that you're compared to because these values are determined by various lab centers and they have a population base of people who are seemingly well when they donate blood. They may not be well. Can you imagine all the sickness hidden in people's bodies and then they go into a um, blood donation and that blood is put into the national banks And those ranges are compared to everyone else within a certain age range, male or female. And then everyone else is compared to them. I can first tell you that these ranges are lousy. Because number one, they're missing a lot of disease. So common sense would tell us that if we tighten those ranges up, maybe made them more like uh, someone 10 years younger than you maybe maybe 20 years younger, compared you to those healthier, younger ranges, that might be a real range to shoot for. So I call those healthy ranges functional ranges, and there's a lot of science to back me up. And I produced a software program called Blood Detective that helps me interpret people's blood compared to healthy ranges, not merely average or clinical, which are the average ranges. Now here's the thing. If you come to me and your labs are normal, It is very likely that when I do my blood detective interpretation of your labs, comparing you to healthy men and women, not just average men and women, you're going to have many abnormalities. And those abnormalities might match up much better with your various health problems. Because when you tighten the ranges up, we'll have more abnormalities, but there's a story told there. For example, if A is abnormal and B is abnormal, then maybe think of disease C. So that's how you can figure things out sooner and you can find things. So when people ask me on interviews that I've done and in, in, in articles I've been uh, interviewed for, how is it Dr. Old tell me, as a blood detective, how do you find all of these things out in people after they've seen so many good practitioners over so many years? And and quite honestly, folks, there's a simple answer. I have a structure, I have a plan. The structure is I have technologies that allow me to assess the body in great detail. Then I can take the results of a variety of tests and I can put them in a software program that helps orient me towards concerns and problems and abnormalities that may not have been appreciated on other tests. I can also, as as part of my structure and strategy, I can take various tests, even normal ones plus abnormal ones, from various practitioners you've seen and put that together so that a picture is often revealed that gives a plan of action or at least suggests a plan of action and then I can work with that and figure out what I need to do to get you healthy. So there isn't a lot of genius there there's a lot of experience. I mean, that took me 29 years to figure that all out. It took 15 years of information into the software program called Blood Detective to help me interpret tests. And also, quite honestly, um, I don't think that some practitioners work very hard. I mean, think of your type of work. And for those of you retired, think of um, when you worked. Did everyone work the same in terms of their efforts? For example, here's another question that uh, someone of you, one of you asked this. The question is, are there five key tests that I should definitely get that might help me treat my current diseases and prevent disease from happening in the future or at least lower the risk? The answer is yes, there are several tests that are so important and they are often all missed by individuals that come to see me that I'm continuously astounded. Now, you might say, well, that's just your opinion, Dr. Wald, maybe not everyone agrees with you. Well, I understand that. I based my choice of tests based on the scientific data For example, you've heard me say this test before, and that test is a bioimpedance test, also known as a body composition. So a body composition test is a test that involves the use of four electrodes. Two electrodes are placed on the right hand, two electrodes are placed on your right foot. An alternating current is put through your body. You don't feel anything. Then it bounces off your cell membranes and measures your metabolic rate, your phase angle, which we talked about on the last show, you should really listen to that show, and your percentage of muscle, water, and fat, and the amount of water in and outside of your cells, among other values, that one test. Now you might say, well, okay, that's interesting, but why, Dr. Wall, did you say that that is in the top five tests? Well, it's it's not really my opinion. It's not only my opinion. It's also the smartest people at Tufts University, and there are some smart people there, and they investigated biomarkers. Biomarkers are tests that when they are improved, they are related statistically to reducing mortality, death risk, and morbidity, meaning reducing one's chances of having a very symptomatic life. And if these biomarkers are improved, then a person should live longer during the non-disability stage of life. That's when you can do stuff. So the body composition test is the number one biomarker. I agree with it because I've been doing it for about 20 years. And I have associated people that do better. I can predict who is going to do well and who is not. No matter what we do, no matter what natural therapies, drug therapies, what have you, we do, if the body composition test does not improve, that person's morbidity and mortality is not improved. So that's test number one. Test number two is blood pH. So the question I got from one of you is, how important is pH? And is blood more important than saliva and or urine pHs? What's the difference? This is so confusing. So that's the question I got. It is confusing. I've even read articles online, when you just search PH and read these articles, a a solid half of them are just absolutely wrong, written by people that are writing about topics they do not know. Uh, I've also written articles on PH that appeared on the web. And even uh, after I gave correct information and they edited it, they edited it wrong with all sorts of errors in it and posted it. So this happens all the time, which is why I don't do these articles anymore that are posted on the web unless I have the last proof. Live and learn. So, which is most important? Well, it depends on your problem. If you have a urinary tract infection, a UTI, then urinary pH is the most important because urinary tract infections generally happen when the urine pH is too alkaline. I'll say it again. When the urine pH is too alkaline, that sets up an environment where various bacteria like E. coli grow like crazy. That's why if you acidify the urine and bring the urine pH down, it can make urinary tract infections go away. This is overly simplistic, but probiotics like lactobacillus acidophilus acid drops the pH of the urine and can cure about 30% of urinary tract infections. Sometimes urinary tract infections are um, viral, and in that case, they will not change a pH usually. They can also be bacterial and they can be fungal. Okay, so a, a urine pH is important for urinary tract infections. Saliva pH is important when you have a lot of degeneration going on in your mouth and or your gastrointestinal tract. Since the, your mouth is connected to your GI tract, there's usually problems in your mouth uh, when there are problems in your GI tract and vice versa. But fundamentally speaking, it's the blood pH, which is the most important for long-term health minus a urinary tract infection. The blood pH is a very narrow pH. It's 7.35 on the low end, 7.35. And on the high end is 7.45, giving us an average of 7.4. I see a lot of people with low blood pHs. Now, guess what, folks? You cannot just eat... Alkaline and foods and raise your blood pH. It doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. It will never work that way. You can alter your urinary pH though by eating differently. And you will eventually alter your blood pH if you should live long enough and your efforts are strict enough. That diet does help affect blood pH. But there are many other ways that are uh, faster and also better ones for immediate need. But the answer to what I just mentioned has to do with the, pro- the problem that the patient is having. If you have cardiovascular issues and you have a blood pH issue that's too low, that's fixed differently and in, in different ways than if you had, let's say, breast cancer and a low pH issue. So the next question I receive from people is, so what are the best nutrients for me to take? So that's a fair question. I mean, people are asking me all the time, even health practitioners at the seminars that I teach, they'll say, what do you take? I'll say, And I'll say politely, what does it matter what I take? What I take may have nothing whatsoever to do with what you need. So as a 53-year-old man who runs marathons, that does karate, who lifts some pretty heavy weights... Well, for a 170-pound man and um, um, has the lifestyle that I have and the genetics that I have and the health goals that I have and the health history that I have, etc., those factors weigh in to what are like the key nutrients I should be taking. But the key nutrients that I should take could be very different and I would bet are very different than the ones you should take. So when a person says to me, what should I take? I say, this is my motto, this is my credo. You need what you need for your needs. You need what you need for your needs. So if your needs are A, B, C, D, E, and F, then you need what you need. Now, if you're a 50 or 60 year old woman, let's say, and there are 10 60 year old women right here with all the same let's say breast cancer or autoimmune disease or diabetes or hypertension or whatever it is given all of the differences between you you would require very different food suggestions very different nutritional supplement suggestions and certainly different exercise suggestions you need what you need for your needs and that's what i help that's that's how i work with individuals I have to reinvent the wheel for each individual simply because you are individuals. You know, medicine loves to talk about studies. Studies, studies, studies. And I like studies, it makes me sound smart. I can quote studies all day long. But studies, when they're done right, double-blind, placebo-controlled, et cetera, what they are basically are averages, how the average person in that study responded compared to a placebo group. So let's say, There was 100 women and they responded, let's say 10% responded to this medication. So they'll say the average dose is this amount for the average person. But what is the average person? So since there is no average person and I do not deal with average people, I deal with individuals that have individual needs. So we need to figure out the right lifestyle, including diet and exercise, sleep, stress reduction, the right nutritional supplements for the right person, at the right time, in the right place, at the right dose, etc. And those are factors that need to be determined by a competent uh, clinical nutritionist or, or, or doctor. Here's a sort of a random question. And this question was, Dr. Wald, could Epstein-Barr have caused my cancer? And the answer is yes. This person's cancer was digestive. Epstein-Barr, for those of you who don't know, uh, is the kissing disease um, uh, that causes mononucleosis. That's what most people know about Epstein-Barr, but it's linked to many, many health problems, to neurological disease, everything from dementia to multiple sclerosis to chronic fatigue. Many, many people Misdiagnose themselves and and these so-called Lyme-literate doctors misdiagnose people with Lyme disease when they're really suffering from the aftermath of Epstein-Barr. There is no way to really prove this because if I tested your blood right now, and you should listen because I'm going to tell you how to interpret a blood test for Epstein-Barr very easily, uh, better than most of your practitioners. And I know this is true because I teach these practitioners and, and many of them do not know how to read labs properly. And here's how it goes. Epstein-Barr virus has two different ways it's measured. One is called IgG, and then Epstein-Barr IgM. If you have a positive IgG test, that means, IgG means that, oh, let me just back up for a second. 80% of the population, 80% of you listening to the show, if I tested your blood, would be positive for Epstein-Barr IgG, meaning that you had been exposed to it at some point in your past. Some of you are shocked to know about that because you never had mono, you've been fine, but um, it doesn't always have to create symptoms. Your body can deal with it and then it's done. Then your body has sort of like a memory of it, which is called Epstein-Barr IgG testing. There is a little bit more to IgG testing that I will tell you in a minute, very important. And then there's IgM testing. IgM positive tests mean that you currently have an active infection. So this is the truth uh, in the the general interpretation of these labs. Now different diseases have a higher predisposition for positive tests. So for example the general population as I said about 80 percent of you will be positive but 90 percent of you that have multiple sclerosis will be positive. So there there are other diseases also that have a higher positivity. Now For certain of those diseases, there is an exception to the IgG-IgM rule. First of all, what is that rule? That IgG means past exposure. Your body dealt with it, it's done. And IgM means current infection. In multiple sclerosis, for example, a positive IgG test and the height of it, how abnormal it is, has been associated with a a prediction of the how the disease is gonna go. So if someone with MS has an elevated IgG and it continues to creep up, that usually means they're gonna have a worse course of MS, they're gonna do worse in terms of disability in the short and the long term. There are ways of reducing the IgG and there are ways of reducing the IgM. And that would depend on the rest of the person's health issues, the rest of the person's chemistry. You know, people say to me, Dr. well, well, why don't I just take antiviral nutrients? Well, that's not wrong. If you took N-acetylcysteine, and if that wasn't on your list, you don't really know what antiviral nutrients are. Respectfully, that's one of the strongest N-acetylcysteine, (NAC) we don't just take one. You'd have to take many, many so-called antiviral nutrients. Now, one of those antiviral nutrients simply might be protein because protein forms in immunoglobulins, which fight viral infections and other infections. They're not simply things that are characteristically antiviral, like echinaceous, dragolus, golden seal. So... There are certain specific fundamental ones like N-acetylcysteine, and also buffered powdered vitamin C. And then there are hundreds of phytonutrients, and i put them all in my detox one through four products. But those, you need a lot of different nutrients to effectively deal with viruses when you're dealing with long-term health effects. We're not talking about a cold. Now, why? Why do you need a lot of nutrients? What's even a lot? Well. Roughly 36 ingredients seems to be the magic number. There's a concept that I've spoken about before known as nutritional synergism. And what that means is that when you take different nutrients in certain combinations, if they're put together correctly, um, small doses of all of those nutrients, when you put them together, they act in the body as if they were extremely high levels. Because if you really wanted an antiviral effect that made a real difference of, let's say, N-acetylcysteine, you'd have to take about 6,000 milligrams. You probably could do that, but it would likely make you very ill. It would cause nausea, probably even vomiting. But if you broke that down to a 1,000 and you combined it with about 15 other nutrients that would act in your blood as if the N-acetylcysteine dose is much, much higher. So nutritional synergism is something that well-trained clinical nutritionists know about. I did a presentation several years back on nutrition and cancer and the absolute necessity of using the concepts of nutritional synergism, synergism because the, the dosing that a person needs to kill cancer cells are almost never achievable when you take the doses of the supplements the studies say. You're probably thinking, what? What what do you mean? If the study says that vitamin C can kill cancer cells at this dose, then I'll take that dose. Well, when you read these studies carefully, some of the levels of these nutrients were given to the person by injecting them in their, in their peritoneum or injecting them in the cerebral spinal fluid or injecting them in the blood. So, we know that vitamin C in an IV works much better than oral. I see too many people banking only on the IV vitamin C uh and that's just not going to happen. It's just not going to work. Meaning you can't you can't you can't beat cancer with one nutrient. This is not going to happen. So there are a minimum of 36 different nutrients which tend to need to be taken together in different ratios for different people and different doses based upon their body composition, which which tells me their lean body mass and also their metabolic rate. The next test of importance, because we're talking about five tests, is a urinary indican test. Urinary indican is a test of malabsorption. Malabsorption means you don't absorb normally. If you're over 50 years old, you have malabsorption. How much, I have no idea. Usually I like to do the test It tells me malabsorption, we have a baseline, we fix it. And in the meantime, we adjust the foods and supplements for that person so that it overcomes their malabsorption. So if they malabsorb by 50%, I might increase the dose of their supplements by 50%. So urinary indicant is a baseline for absorption or malabsorption is key. The other thing is vitamin C levels in the urine. The blood levels might look normal, they could even be high, but if we don't have spillage of vitamin C in the urine, they're not high enough. So vitamin C levels in the urine and also measuring something called dehydroascorbate. Dehydroascorbate is the oxidized form of vitamin C in the urine. If a person has a high level of this, it's probably very bad and might even be contributing to their disease or dysfunctions or illnesses. Unless they're getting intravenous vitamin C, you actually want to measure dehydroascorbic acid in the urine. So different tests have different interpretations depending on the illness or problem. And testing is important because if done right, it serves as a baseline for comparison. Very, very important for comparison. A lot of uh, people that I see report to me with all sorts of tests. A lot of the tests are actually quite good. Except they're relatively old for the test and they've never had a comparison to know what's happened. So I must admit that a good third of the people that I see do not follow through. They haven't followed through with the proper testing and it's not really their fault. The practitioner has to impress upon the person the importance of the comparison. Right? Comparisons, you have to know where you're going. So if you want to get to C and you start at A, you need to know if you're getting to B and how fast is that happening and what got you there, and then you make adjustments accordingly. Another test which I find extremely useful in the top five is a test of hardness of the arteries, arterial sclerosis, Arteriosclerosis, atherosclerosis are terms used to describe cardiovascular disease. And there is a non invasive way which puts an electrical pulse through the finger and it goes through the small capillaries and reverberates throughout your entire cardiovascular system. And in a few minutes, there are over a dozen biomarkers of cardiovascular health, including how old your cardiovascular system is relative to your chronological age. So I had a 60. Seven-year-old gentleman today coming to see me who had an 82-year-old, I think it was, 82-year-old cardiovascular age. So that's no different than maybe you had some injuries to your shoulder throughout your life and you have arthritis in your shoulder that's much worse than the left, which means that your right shoulder is simply a lot older than your left So knowing the age of your cardiovascular system is extremely important no matter what your health issues are, even if you don't think they're cardiovascular, because cardiovascular disease will likely kill most of us. That is the number one cause of death. So I do what I can to reduce my risk. I do these biomarkers myself. I do the cardiovascular aging test as well. And then if it reveals that arteries are too hard, meaning they've lost elasticity, then I can make sure that in my patients, when I give them the right doses of omega-3s and phytonutrients or the right exercise and food suggestions, when the combination of things must all translate into softer arteries. Now, I'm not talking about blocked arteries. That's an, that's another consideration. A lot of people say to me, oh, no, Dr. Wald, well, my arteries, they're not blocked. I'm good, good to go. And then I measure their arterial system uh, biological age, and it's 10 years, 20 years older than they are. So many individuals who are not healthcare professionals do not realize that, for example, if you have an EKG, which is an electrical test of your heart and it looks great, that has nothing to do with hardening of your arteries that has nothing to do with structural problems that might exist in your arteries, which are determined by an echocardiogram, that the EKG has nothing to do with stiffness or flow problems. They won't all show up on an EKG. Sometimes indirect evidence of those things might show up. But my point here is that there are different tests for the same system that are different viewpoints. So my blood detective logic which I'm hoping you'll adapt for your own health, is to use a reasonable number of complementary biomarkers that look at things from a few different angles to know that you've got your bases covered. I had a gentleman who came to see me who um, ate the right way. This guy was a vegan. He took the right supplements on paper. It looked perfect um, for someone who wanted to just be sort of healthy in a general sense. And he had a heart attack. He had a heart attack with clots, clots in his legs. And he was absolutely devastated and astounded and asked me, how can this happen? I do not understand. I ate right. I took the right supplements, etc., etc. How did it happen? I, I exercised. And I said to him that, because I read, read over his record, I said, well, you didn't do any individualized testing to know what your needs actually were. You, you base them on listening to a radio show, a very intelligent host that doesn't know you. So even what I'm saying here, it's meant to get you thinking so you can be a better healthcare consumer. Like I like to say, your own blood detectives, to, so you can figure things out better because we only have one chance to get this figured out. And um, some people wait too long or they assume that just because they eat in some way that they have learned is correct, and they've taken some supplements which they heard were great, whether they were absorbing them, whether the doses were wrong, their timing was wrong, all kinds of factors, even beyond all of that, may have underplayed the potential of these supplements, particularly in this, this guy. But he's not the only one. And In fact, I, have a lot of, I see a lot of very educated people who know something about health, What they don't know is how it relates to them. The closest thing that people tend to say to me that is a reflection of how their efforts are affecting them is how they feel. So this question in front of me is Dear Dr. Wald Does how I feel reflect my health? I like to think of myself as someone who is Perceptive to my own health issues and how I feel. And I feel good, but there's a lingering concern and fear that I have that maybe I'm missing something. So let me distill that question down because it's a really key one for just about everybody out there. I think this woman is saying, at least in part, is if I feel good, does that mean I'm healthy? Unfortunately not. Now, for some people, it's very confusing when I say that. They'll say, well, Dr. Wald, but I feel fine. Uh, If I were sick, I would have symptoms. And I would say to them, do you mean symptoms like a cold? They would say, well, I suppose. I said, well, you know, there are, for example, cancers that grow in organs that don't have sensory nerves, so until they... The cancer grows and presses upon other structures in the body that that do affect the person to a point where they say, why is my blood pressure increasing or why do I have this pain in my abdomen or why do I have this back pain? And lo and behold, it's cancer inside that grew, 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 but a person had no symptoms until it got to a certain point. And it's not just cancer. It's even cardiovascular disease. If you have a blood vessel in the heart, if it's blocked 50%, you don't feel much of anything. You don't feel anything. But if it gets blocked at about 70% or so, then a person usually starts to have some cardiovascular compromise. But not until things get to a certain point. So my point here, to answer this question, if I'm feeling well, am I really healthy? The answer is, unfortunately, no. I um have so many examples, dozens upon dozens of examples of people that came to me and they said, Dr. Wald, I think I'm healthy, I feel good. I just wanted to get a workup. And I have found sometimes nothing where people are totally healthy, but other people, breast cancer, prostate cancer, multiple sclerosis, migraines, autoimmune disease, diabetes, and all kinds of rare things. Um, that they didn't even know about. But that shouldn't really be a surprise when you think about it because disease, just like health, is uh, usually, or I should say it's often gradual. So let's say you're born healthy and over the course of your life, certain derangements of your cells take place, break down and the immune system becomes compromised. And all of a sudden one day, you can't urinate properly. And maybe that's because there were cancer cells in your prostate. Or one day you're feeling your breast, nothing wrong, no problem. Then all of a sudden, where'd this lump come from? It takes approximately five years, by the way, for a, a lump in the breast to be palpated, that means touched with your hands. But it's been growing all that time. It's about that time too, before it can be seen on mammography. My point here is not to scare you, but a certain amount of prevention in terms of testing and in terms of careful um, consultation with a trained healthcare provider who's trained in prevention, who uses various questionnaires. Very soon, by the way, I will be posting a number of important, very short, but very accurate health questionnaires on my website. Uh, you'd want to check it out starting um, this coming week. Um, the website is I N T M E D N Y dot com. I'll repeat it I N T M E D N Y dot com. For those of you just joining us, where have you been? <laughs> My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. We're talking about some of the common questions and concerns that people just like you have about your health. And I just mentioned that on my website, which is dot com, there'll be short questionnaires that will give you an idea of how you're doing in different areas of health. So there'll be questionnaires in the anti-aging area of the website, questionnaires in the thyroid section of the website, uh, things of that nature. And um, if you wanna be on my mailing list to be, uh, Sent more detailed information about how to use these questionnaires And where to find them Please email me at info at blooddetective.com That's info at blooddetective.com On the, Also, you should be aware that I do see patients I don't just give radio shows And I do distance consults and in-person consultations My office is in Westchester County in Katona My phone number is 914 552 1-442, 914-552-1442. Here's another uh question that is quite important, and it has to do with just being generally oriented to just like what health means, like what what is that, so this person asks, Dr. Wald, I have a very rudimentary understanding of my cardiovascular system, and I have heart disease. Can you please explain? more about the cardiovascular system. So I'm gonna do more than that. I'm gonna tell you more about the whole body in about a minute or less, Okay, maybe two minutes. First of all, here's the point to this question. If you have a problem with, let's say, maybe you have lymphoma and you have a problem with your lymphatic system, or you have cardiovascular disease, you have a problem with your cardiovascular system, Neurologic disease with the neurologic system, endocrine disease with the hormonal system, digestive disease with the digestive tract, etc., etc., etc. Number one fallacy is there are not they're not they're not separate systems. They're all connected. They actually physically really are. The only separation between all our different organ systems is are artificial that were determined that way by. Uh, Anatomists that first cut open human bodies and tried to describe things, and then wanted to go further and uh, teach students in uh, medical schools and chiropractic schools. you You know, how do you how do you understand this stuff? So you break it down into systems. But the problem with breaking things down into systems, it's an artificial delineation compartmentalization is artificial. So any ideas you may have about those systems separately, no matter how brilliant they might seem to be, are never fully correct, particularly unless one thinks of all these systems as they are, holistically connected. So I would suggest you first realize that your doctors, they may not... They may not explain to you the the basics of your major system, which seems to be affected in your disease. I have to admit that I suffer from this sometimes myself, where I might be having a conversation with someone about uh, the immune system, but I don't. I assume that they understand what that is, and I've actually had people stop me and say, "Dr. Wald, well, what what is the immune system really?" And then I'm like, "Wow, um, I'm glad you stopped me." I made an assumption there and I should not. First of all, we have three immune systems, et cetera, And then I go from there. And then I draw pictures up on the board in my office. I have a drawing board. So if you have some basic, at least rudimentary knowledge about the, at least the basic organ system that you have, and if you go further and have some understanding about how one system might relate to another, then you're way ahead of the curve. Because then when you see a healthcare provider uh, or maybe that healthcare provider is the one that educates you about this, you will have you've a, a far better um, relationship with your body and you'll start to come up with ideas that are much more accurate uh, in terms of how you perceive yourself. I had a gentleman say to me, Dr. Wald, I know it's my kidneys. And then he, and then he took his hands and he kind of put them around his body. He kept going from front to back with his hands. And I said, why are you doing that? And he says, well... Aren't the kidneys kind of like a tire that go around your body? And I said, actually, no. Uh, The kidneys are about the size of your fists. And they're kind of midway in your body. And he was astounded. So if you have a better understanding of what really is happening, then you can read signs and symptoms much better in your own body. I want to remind you all that I did, I believe it were three shows called, um, diseases in the mirror. Okay. So when you watch that show, it teaches you dozens of ways of looking at your body and seeing all kinds of disease problems that are within. So that even if you're feeling great, for example, I was sitting with a person recently, I think it was last week. And this is a common thing. And, uh, I was looking at, I'm sorry, it was it was a woman. I was looking at her ears and she had a very deep diagonal earlobe crease. And many of you who listen to the show have heard this before. The diagonal earlobe crease is the most predictive sign of cardiovascular disease that a person can have. It predicts cardiovascular disease much more accurately than cholesterol or even hypertension. And for those of you who want more information on that, I was interviewed by ABC World News Tonight. There's a video on my homepage of my website right at the bottom. I have about 60 videos on the site. And very, very soon, I'm po- um, uh, posting up about sixty three to six minute audios on all kinds of major topics. If you want to be If you want to be included on the mailing list to receive those quick blood detective knowledge bits, I call them, then definitely email me and say I need to be on your email list at info at or actually do me this favor. On my homepage or any of the pages of my website at intmedny.com, you'll see an emailing list button. Just click it and that'll immediately put you on the email list. Now, if you have a particular topic that you want to hear about, no matter how abstract, I'd like to know it. Email me that at info at blooddetective.com because I'd like to make hundreds of three to six minute uh, blood detective knowledge bites so I can speak about most anything. And then I'm going to post that. And that's just going to end up with more and more and more information for you uh, people. Next question. And this is a pretty basic one, but it's really important. Uh, this gentleman says, Dr. Wald, I am a medical physician. I went to medical school, I took one of your seminars for four hours, all you did was review medical literature on the use of nutrition in cancer care. Why is it that they told us in medical school there was no evidence? Now, I said to this physician, well, what do you think? And they said, well, they clearly lied because I checked as well and the evidence is there. I said, well, they, they could have lied. They, prob- they may have lied, but there's also ignorance. They honestly may have thought there was no evidence. And she said, because we spoke, well, they could easily check the national databases of scientific evidence to see evidence. And I said to her, a lot of them are simply lazy, And they're run by their egos. So it never occurs to them to sit down for that three to five minutes and actually do that. And she says, well, people suffer. People die because of that, particularly in my field. And I said, I know. And this is true in many different fields as well. Here's a question from a person who has quite a number of health problems. But I chose to bring up this question because... The question relates to probably a lot of you, and her her question is the following. Dr. Wald, I have high cholesterol, I have hypertension, I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, I'm overweight, I have breast cysts, calcifications in my breasts, and polycystic ovarian syndrome. Is it possible, for me to get off my medications. So I'm asked all the time, is it possible to get off medications? The quick answer is, of course it's possible. If a person takes the right steps, it's entirely possible that they could either get off of their medications completely, or at the very least, reduce the doses of their medication. And I'll tell you from experience, I don't pull people off medications day one when they say, I want off these medications. And they'll say to me, why? And I'll say, the reason for that is we have to build up a certain amount of resiliency in your body so that when we remove you off medication, it's an easier transition and your body has some real chance of not just getting off the medications, but staying off the medications. I'll tell you folks, There isn't a day that goes by, including today, that I didn't have many people that just started seeing me, for example, that on their own just stopped taking their medications. For the gentleman I just spoke with several hours ago with a 250 blood sugar, he needs insulin and his metformin until we can do some healing work in his body. So if I'm gonna give him lipoic acid, which is a hypo, well, it's a a blood sugar balancer, I have to find out the right dose that he needs over what period of time. So think of it this way. If he remains on his medication as we increase the lipoic acid over time, and if we watch the blood sugar and it's going down, 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 we could start to lower some of the other medications. So this is a sort of a give and take dynamic adjustment that I'm doing with people so that we do things safely and in a controlled way. Because the thing about a lot of these medications, whether they're medications for anxiety or ADD, or whether they're blood sugar managing or blood pressure or blood cholesterol medications, the right nutrition has to be determined how much does this person absorb? Do they malabsorb? We have to adjust the dose. What's their metabolic rate? We have to adjust the dose. How hard are they willing to exercise? Not so much, we have to adjust the dose. What are the genetic factors? Big uh, disease risks. so we have to adjust the dose based on that. Then what's their pH? What's their blood sugar? So these are things that health professionals like I look at to manage properly uh, transitioning from medications to nutrition. Is it always possible that you can eliminate every medication? No, it is absolutely not possible. Is it frequently possible that you can? Yes. It simply de- it depends on the unique circumstance because everyone is different. And there's a lot of factors that go into play. But I'm, I love that challenge. I agree with the non-drug approach whenever possible. Have One last question. So this question is so important, uh, and I'm very happy that many of you asked it. For some of you, it's so basic, you're gonna wonder why the person asked it. And it is, Dr. Wald, what is the best diet? So if you have multiple sclerosis, the best diet is something called a swank diet that's been modified to be more vegan with gluten removal, but is high in omega-3s with oral chelators. What I just did there was show you how a diet might need to be created for an individual based upon their unique circumstances. The paleo diet is nonsense and an insult, really. There's no paleo diet. Paleo people's, ate very differently on all areas of the planet, and then they all had sex, and then they mixed up and mishmashed their genes together, and then the the dietary needs of different peoples vary. So going back to some paleo-mythical diet makes no sense. Just like blood-type dieting makes no sense. There's no science behind it, and every person I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them over the years that have done type blood-type diets, Uh, they have a lot of bad chemistry going on. Some of them have lost weight, though. Of course, if you're a a blood type A and you go on a vegan diet, that could be really good for you. I get it. Except I also see protein deficiencies in vegans and B12 deficiencies and all sorts of problems. The answer to the question is, I am only interested in what the best diet is for you that is doable on a daily basis so you you can live with it. Otherwise, if you can't live with it, it can't add up to anything. So you take all the information that a person gives to me uh, and there's questionnaires and there's some testing to do and evaluation of prior tests and health goals and current health status and what are the medications and you figure out the best way for them to eat. So thank you so much, everyone, for your great questions. If you want to reach me with more questions, you can email me at info at info at blooddetective.com. If you'd like to see me as a patient, I would love to work with you. You can do that by calling me at 914-552-1442. That's 914-552-1442. Please go to my website, watch the videos I have under the video section, and listen to a lot of the audios I have under the blog section, blog section at intmedny.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ask the Blood Detective. My name is Dr. Michael Wald, and I'll speak with you all soon. Bye-bye.